Quick shout out from our sponsor, Sheer ID. Are you trying to boost conversions to your Shopify store? Need to drive more customer loyalty? Get results fast by offering exclusive discounts to consumer communities with Sheer ID. Sheer ID helps verify students, teachers, military, first responders, and so much more of these groups. With Sheer ID, you'll get a verified match in seconds. You can spit out an exclusive discount for customers on the spot. Try speaking directly to a new customer segment with this verifiable identity without adding friction to the shopping experience. Continue to drive incremental revenue in the next 90 days post-purchase with more tailored messaging for your email and SMS campaigns. I personally tested ShareID to see just how easy it was to get set up, and I was pretty much ready to go in under 15 minutes. The onboarding was simple enough for me to follow as a non-technical person. Go to sheerid.com slash Shopify and start your free trial today. Once again, that's sheerid.com slash Shopify and start your free trial today. This is Brand Builders. We've been actively working in D2C land for years and are continuing to be in the trenches daily. I'm Matt Lady, one of the co-hosts. Each week, I have an episode with Tom Brown and an episode with Richie Mashiko. Sometimes we'll have one together. We are here to share our unfiltered, candid, casual perspectives, insights, lessons, experiences on building a D2C brand. We text about this stuff all the time and are super nerds about all things e-commerce. And we just want to share this with you and hope you get something from it. Enjoy the show. All right. Here's uh, episode one of me and Richie's new podcast. And uh, so what are we talking about today? First on the docket, let's go to the good old bird app. And there's this tweet from, I consider him a friend, Zach Stuck. Want to read the tweet? Yeah. So he's asking, who here is currently running a brand, Holdco, owning and operating four plus brands, looking for feedback on team slash org structure. I've helped lead a and build a 40-person growth agency. Now we're giving the Holdco model a go. Know someone I should talk with, tag them below. And this got a ton of like replies, not a ton of likes and engagement on the initial tweet. But there's amazing like replies and back and forths and a bunch of different perspectives. So yeah, so let me talk about who Zach is first. Yeah, because um, I know Zach actually. Um, Zach uh, runs an agency called uh, Homestead Studio, and he and Homestead Studio um, does growth across channels. Um, I owe him a lot, and my boy Connor. They got us from zero to seven and a half million in six months in 2020 and he runs an agency which is homestead and i think they're at what he put out a tweet recently they're at what like 40 employees yep uh yep 40 employees um and he's been dabbling in uh building his own brands right i think this is a pretty common idea that a lot of agency folks a lot of service providers especially on the growth side who are like hey i'm generating all this cash i'm generating all this money for brands i'm still poor not really but I'm, I feel like I'm leaving a lot of money on, <laughs> on the table. Yeah. Um, so why shouldn't I start? And he got, like you said, he got a lot of replies. And the few that we wanted to highlight, um, I don't know if you want to talk about Andrews and Bill specifically. And you get more comments yeah. around that. Yeah. And so I'll read that in a second. I want to mention the second point about that, of like why agencies and service providers think like that. It's I think it's because... They think marketing and growth is so important and the only thing that matters. And they see the results and they see them amplifying and growing these brands, but they have a good product. Like 
yeah, they took you from very little to a lot very quickly. And they did a great job of that, but you had the product market fit before that. It's hard to beat a good, good to great product. Like, so that's essential, but like, oh yeah, then I'll just like use my agency employees or our knowledge, or we know what's going to be working across the, all these other brands and clients. And we can just make sure we get it right for our own brand. Um, so it's just like, just some other reasons why people do that. So yeah, so and- throw that in there. Um, and and I actually think Zach is really smart, um, really smart mm-hmm. person. Obviously, mm-hmm. uh, I own a lot, <laughs> um, and and I have a lot of respect for him. And I just thought it was an interesting debate because somewhere else, though, friendly with Andrew, who you know used to be in the four by four hundred ecosystem, and this guy Bill. I've never talked to Bill, but I listen to his stuff. I follow him. I think I I think all these people are smart. All these people are smart. Okay, but I think the interesting conversation is. Andrew and Taylor Holiday and Bill, who have gone down this road, basically boil down their voice to their their advice to don't do this because this is very hard to do, right? So Andrew says in response to Zach's tweet, Andrew says, "Well, I think mine and Taylor Holiday's advice may be Dave Recooks, who's also another super smart guy that we know. Yeah. Um, even Bill would be don't do it, but otherwise would be to have utter clarity about your goals, capitalize accordingly, then make every team related decision only after that." Um, blah 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 and I saw Zach had a reply was waiting for someone in the 4x400 crew to bite at this haha for clarity we're building separate brands with separate P&Ls and doing everything in our power to limit shared resources outside of obvious ones like fill partners accounting etc and then I think this is where the conversation is the most important part that we want to talk about right yeah. Andrew replies do you think they all have similar upside and then Zach lists out um the goals and kind of where he sees the vision for each of the brands right so brand a goal is to sell for one million dollars next year brand b goal is to sell for one to two million dollars next year brand c and d can do both uh one to two million bottom line ebitda next year and have the potential for larger exits these will be the focus going into q3 or q4 next year and then taylor says here is the inherent conflict in the model if the opportunity in C and D is as stated, then there is no reason to do brand A and B. Focus all resources on the best opportunity, especially if you are selling individually and not aggregating the EBITDA. And then Bill says, bingo. Um, that's why business needs to be large enough to support a dedicated senior management team. That's $2 million of EBITDA. And I think what this all means is that it's very important for you as an operator when you're doing these types of things to understand how you're going to capitalize the business and, and what model you're going to follow. Right. And what the goals are. Right. So Matt, if you want to talk a little about your situation, right. Or not your situation, but conversations that we've had, you know, for a solo operator who just, Hey, I have a skill set to create an e-commerce brand. Right. Going from zero to a million, doing $200,000 in EBITDA, like that's a good business, right? That could be a good business. Where I think, I'm going to say the last point, then I'll stop talking. Uh, Taylor and um, Bill's point of view is coming from is that they've raised money from investors, right? Whenever you take on equity, when you do an equity raise, uh, that comes with a set of expectations, right? So... I could tell you, especially I would still consider this more angel type investing, 
right? You want to, you know, five, 10 X your investment, right? So if they raise money, if they raise $2 million, just hypothetically, right? At a $10 million valuation, which is not unheard of, you know, the value of the business, whether it's a hold coal, the hold co or the pieces of the business needs to be, get to a valuation of $50 million for it to kind of be worth it, right? That's a very different outcome. And how you get to $50 million is very different than someone getting to one to $2 million, right? And selling the brand for two, three X EBITDA and walking away with half a million dollars, right? So that's, I think that's a, that's a very important distinction. And I'll stop talking there. Let you yeah, talk. it is very important. It's so, and they're trying to say, yeah, like if you know, these other two are going to be do better and have the highest exit potential, why even bother with the A and B? Like, I think uh, if he doesn't, Zach hasn't taken any money and he hasn't like raised uh, anything, like even if he wants to sell the brand and flip it and get some cash and then reinvest it into brand C and D, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no, like, not everyone right. is just going for the biggest exit for every single thing. We have no idea what the rest of Zach's, like, master plan is beyond this year that he laid out, right? So this these could just be the stepping stones and the like building blocks to this bigger play that we don't know about. And so if he wants to sell these brands for this, this amount, that's probably easier than raising a bunch of money, either a lot or a little, and then trying to go for this big swing and outcome across a bunch of brands that, you know, if it's all together in EBITDA, right? So, right, and I, I, I think the thing here is that there's been a lot of um, uh, capital raised by these so-called aggregators, right? And like I said, whenever you raise capital, that comes with a certain set of obligations or quote-unquote commitments that you're making. And I think the thing that people are finding is that these e-commerce businesses, these uh, D2C brands, are just fundamentally different than technology businesses. They're just fundamentally different than SaaS businesses. I think everyone knows that, or a lot of people know that by now. And yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with investing a little bit of money of your own money, bootstrapping, and scaling a business to, you know, multi six figure outcome. That's 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 not bad. Right. And no. if you could part if you could take that cash and parlay it into a larger opportunity then I think, I think that's great. I mean, that's how a lot of private equity, a large, a lot of the largest private equity firms have been built, right? They start with one business. I mean, that's how the South Berkshire Hathaway was built. They started with a fucking a mill or something like that in called Berkshire Hathaway or something like that. And then over time, they grew their portfolio. So yeah, I just think it's, it's important to, to understand the game that you're playing and what does winning look like, right? Because that's, that's different for different situations. Yeah. And it looks like he knows what, what, how he wants to achieve next year to sell this brand for a million brand B sell this for one to 2 million brand C and D like you said, like all, um, bottom line selling it for one to 2 million or that's the bottom line and they can sell for more. Right. So that's, he knows what he's like doing. It, it doesn't seem like he has investors and any obligation to, if plans change, he can just push it out until next year. There's no one like gun to his head. Like you must raise this, like grow this business this quickly. Right. There's like, Oh, this is what I think. These are my brands. I, I own. It's my money. You have a lot more optionality and yes, optionality can spread you thin. It can 
make you not be able to focus on one thing enough. And it's, it's still tough, but I think he probably has chosen the opportunities a little bit better or a little differently and knows why he did it and what it's for and has that goal outcome in mind. And it doesn't seem that real unrealistic. So yeah. I think, yeah. No, I think, you know, I talked to Zach a lot, like a couple of years ago about this. So it's kind of interesting to see it play out. Um, so yeah, I think that was a good, uh, that was an interesting thing that we texted about a lot. Yeah. Uh, this week. Want to go on to the, uh, to the acquisition stuff? Yeah. So in the recent re- weeks, uh, in our little corner of DTC Twitter, we've had two pretty well-known brands uh, in our corner of Twitter, of course, uh, get acquired. And so the first one is Patrick Cadeau from Get Supply. It's these razors and uh, similar related products. And they got acquired by Foundry Brands. And this is many years ago. Him and his wife just started this brand in their house. <laughs> And they didn't have any econ background. They didn't know what, like, they didn't know what they're doing. They didn't know what they didn't know. And they learned everything along the way. So they sold and got acquired. And I think he's staying on. And then the other brand is Hero Cosmetics by Ju Hiryu. Hugh? Ju Ryu. Yeah. I don't, how, don't know how to pronounce it, but she sold Hero Cosmetics to uh, Church and Dwight uh, for. I think it was $630 million yep. and her, her and her team seem to be also going and transitioning with them. And so we have two recent acquisitions and uh, brands being sold, but two very different outcomes. Which one do you want to start with? Or why do you want to, why do you want to talk about these two ones specifically? Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, I think it's, um, I think there are lessons um, to take out of each of them. So I, let's, let's go in chronological order. So let's start with Jews. Okay. Um, Hero Cosmetics. So Hero Cosmetics got, from my understanding, um, really big with the single product. And why I kind of relate to this is because it's a similar story to, to Birdie. And they, they, they really pioneered the space with this product called uh, Pimple Patch. They call it the Mighty Patch. And essentially what it is, is it's like a sticker you put it over a pimple, like that's about to pop. And so instead of popping it and getting acne stars, you just peel it off the next morning and the swelling has gone down and kind of all the pus and everything inside is 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 uh, taken out. And I think for me, the really interesting thing about this acquisition was actually her strategy. Well, first, before we go into the strategy, let's talk about the, the numbers, right? So I think it was $110 million uh, exit. Let me pull it up real quick. Or not, not an exit. Uh, at the time of exit, it was 110 million dollar, right. 115 million dollar, uh, trailing 12 months top line revenue, and 45 million dollars in EBITDA, which is absolutely bonkers. <laughs> Most commerce businesses run at about 10 to 15 percent EBITDA, which is considered really good. And the so is the like, fact is that like 33, 35 percent, or 30, yeah. something like that. Four, no, 40. 40%, 40, yeah. No, 40%. no public math. Yeah, no public math. <laughs> um, and I think as e-com marketers, the first thing that everyone asks is, how much did she spend on marketing? 
<laughs> right. Because when you look at like the when you look at the PL and you look at the marketing dollars as a percentage of top line revenue, that number could easily easily be 30, 40, 50 percent, especially nowadays when advertising is less efficient than it used to be, you know, even just two years ago. And why I think that's interesting is because her strategy was Amazon retail first, right? And I don't know how significant of a portion her e-com uh, eventually became, but I think it shows, um, and kind of everyone's going toward this, right, that um, omnichannel is really important, right? And I think if done well, what generally happens is that your retail presence leads to sales on your e-com site, right? I think the more places that you are, you're naturally going to get some spillover from these other channels um, and have those be those channels be profitable um, or increase their revenue. So I think that was a really important lesson that she operated her business in a way where it was really popular at the time, even five years ago when she started um, to say, hey, you know, D2C is, is a business model. Right, that's like your competitive advantage, and she she kind of zagged where everyone was zigging, or zig where everyone was zag, whatever the the saying is. So yeah, I thought that was that was a, a pretty interesting lesson, and then it also shows something else that you and I talk about regularly is that attributes matter, right? <laughs> like like Conor McGregor says, you gotta have some attributes, you gotta have you gotta have some size or speed, you gotta have some, yeah, you know, um, and with the pimple with with the product in general it's uh, the fact that it is consumable that it is there i imagine there's a high repeat purchase rate led to those bigger uh multiple numbers yeah and then she started with that she got to figure out if it was going to be popular if it's going to take off and she got an amazon and retail got a lower profit margin from those distribution channels but also you need less less marketing, not no marketing, but less marketing than if you are just starting with Shopify and just buying Facebook ads and just sending them right to your site. You'll likely spend more money that way. So she got to like figure out which product is going to work. And then the mighty patch, you know, clearly like worked on Amazon and then retail. And then they went D to C and they kept like expanding products. You know, it's not just the mighty patch now. That's what some people like, oh, I have this cool idea. I have this one killer product. Most brands um, are not a single product. They start that way. You can definitely get pretty far that way. But if you want a big, big outcome and big exit, you do have to expand your product line and, and make it somewhat similar and somewhat relatable, somewhat, you know, fits in with it. But I think those are... Uh, good lessons to take away from hero. So yeah. Patrick, big congrats. Yeah. Big congrats. That's <laughs> that's huge. The fact that you sold insane. your business for over 630 for over $600 million in five years is it's pretty Absolutely remarkable. <laughs> and I think they only raised, if I remember, they only raised a round of capital and that wasn't even because they needed money. Mm. It was because you want to go faster. It was, it was actually expertise and relationships. I think oh, okay. from, from what you said, but that, that's, that's just an incredible story. Yeah. A quick reminder from our sponsor, ShareID. Find your next lifetime customers by providing verified discount codes based on occupation or life stage. Speak directly to veterans, students, teachers, first responders, and continue to tailor your messaging to them in the future with post-purchase emails and text messages. 
Make them feel seen with your brand by using ShareID to seamlessly verify their email in seconds during the purchase process. Go to shareid.com slash Shopify and start your free trial today. So then moving to Patrick and Supply, he's got these single edge razors that he's also expanded later on to kind of like face wash and skincare um, as well, actually. So why do you think that Supply had such a, relatively speaking, smaller outcome than Hero? Obviously millions of dollars for a husband and wife and not having any background and experience and just, you know, doing a lot of it themselves. They don't have a big team. So like, but why do you think, what can we take away from the two different exits and sizes and why supply might be like, why it was slower than Hero? Yeah, well, I think it's good to set a context first. And what are like, you know, when you look at these types of deals, I think the first thing you always got to look at is what are top line sales? What are what is EBITDA? And what are you know kind of the the industry comps in terms of multiples? So um, Patrick talked about this publicly on Andrew's podcast that just launched today, um, and he said it was a high. I think the trailing twelve months was high seven figures in revenue. So you could do some back of the napkin math. You could round up, say, hey, if it's high seven figures. Let's round up to ten million dollars, right, and say. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he's doing a million and a half, $2 million in EBITDA. And um, with the way things are now, I know fundraising and, and raising money in the market right now is 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 a little wonky. But, you know, just assume for a brand that size, you know, you're getting maybe a, a three to six X multiple on your EBITDA, right? So on the low end, three, three X, uh, one and a half million, it's four and a half million. Um, and on the high end, uh, six times two is $12 million, right? Which is a significant amount of money. That's a life-changing amount of money. People retire off that amount of money. And I think even though um, it wasn't the biggest, quote-unquote, uh, the biggest the biggest outcome, right? I mean, compared to uh, choose outcome, right? It, 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 Hero Cosmetics' outcome is, it, you know, pretty small. But I think it's interesting is that it kind of goes back to the first Twitter topic we were, we were talking about that these sorts of exits are still viable in e-commerce. I don't think he was on Amazon. I think he's actually pretty anti-Amazon. Actually, um, he might have been on and had a bad experience or something. And but I know he's. I, I don't think he's on Amazon. Um, I don't know how much retail that he did. Right. So for the past, I think seven years, being on e-commerce, doing nothing special right? Doing the fundamentals well shows that there's still opportunities to achieve an outcome that gives you, a, you and your, your family, a life-changing amount of money, <laughs> right? As long as you just don't go and blow it all and buy a bunch of stupid shit or go to the casino and gamble it all, then, you know, put it in an ETF or put it in some real estate or whatever, you know, he's going to be, he doesn't need to worry about cash. <laughs> yeah. So, that's uh, that's helpful. That's good to like think about. Good to know. Is it partially also the products and like price point of like Hero Cosmetics being much lower uh, price, like low AOV and I, you know, consumable? I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't. You know, I don't know if that necessarily has to do anything with. Uh, I mean, I mean, there's. There, I'm sure there's some factor, but I think thing with Hero Cosmetics is they were uh, with the Mighty Patch. I think the Mighty Patch was a 10x product. Mm. Right. Because all the other um, pimple uh, treatment 
acne treatments were kind of like the proactive or the peroxides or whatever, you know, people would put on their face. They, you know, you rub a little bit of a white dot on and uh, leave it on overnight, right? Where this was, this was actually something that was very different than what, than anything that existed on the market. And even though, and even the supply as a beautiful razor, right? I, I don't know how much is it like ninety dollars now. You want to check that? Yeah, um, one of the yeah eighty nine. The single edge pro is eighty nine. Single edge SE is fifty nine. Right. So that's freaking expensive for a razor. Right. And, but I think the thing about this razor, um, is that it's different, but it's not 10 X different than products that have been on the market, than existing products on the market. Right. Whether it's a Gillette or a Harry's or, you know, whatever other razor grooming products are in the market, it's not, it's just not different enough to have that escape velocity. Right. But it shows that you could still do the fundamentals really well, have a product with high gross margin. We talked about on, when you talked about on Andrew's show, um, do the fundamentals as well and still get a life changing amount of money. And it w- probably wasn't uh, easy and it took seven or eight years. Right. right. But um, he didn't know anything at the beginning besides like, I want to, <laughs> I want to try making a better razor. And that's all he started out with. he learned everything else along the way. So, um, it's a good point about the mighty patch it was, is more of a category creation or at least like advancement versus, like you said, versus just the liquid creams and like gels and stuff. Uh, this is just like the patch and it's like by kind of like pretty invisible for the most part. Uh, it's not yeah. totally invisible, but it is less noticeable. So. Yeah, I think it just makes you feel less self-conscious about it. Um, just covering it up, it's efficient, it works. <laughs> and then like people like, oh, what's that patch? Like, you know, oh, it, yeah, this is my pip- body patch, pimple patch. It's much easier for like basic word of mouth and ref- like referrals, right, as well versus, oh, yeah, your face looks really well shaven. <laughs> like what razor do you use? I, I, maybe I'm thinking too much into it, but... I think um, part of it is a little bit in this, these two specific examples of like women versus men. I like mighty patch is not just for women, right? Like guys can use it too, but for the most part, supplies marketed for men and made for men. So there's always like some extra components to it, right? It's not just high OV versus low AOV or the, the website wasn't good enough for like for Facebook right. ads. She, she knew how to run Facebook ads better than Patrick. Like, I don't think, I don't think any of those are the, the biggest. Right. It's the, it's the attributes of the brand, the attributes of the product, the, att- the attributes, you know, the, the Irish say the attributes, how Conor McGregor says it. Um, and, you know, I think what's really important with these two, both of these topics, right. Is to understand the game that you're playing know what winning looks like and optimize to get that winning outcome. I think sometimes what happens is that people see takes on Twitter or see this narrative or these narratives that form, whether it's on Twitter, whether it's on other podcasts, whether it's in the media, right? And it, they almost become dogmatic um, to these narratives that are told. And I think in a lot of cases, there is merit to the narratives that are being told and the, the advice that is being given. But other times you got to, you got to know what game you're playing and you just got to say that I'm just playing a different game than you. 
right? So I'm going to operate differently. Um, I think something recently that's been, been, been talked a lot about is like, oh yeah, like e-com brands shouldn't raise money, right? Because they can't raise or they can't achieve uh, venture scale outcomes, you know, which is true in most cases. But when you think about it, most technology businesses don't reach venture scale outcomes, right? Venture scale outcomes are extremely rare, right? That's why there's, that's why, you know, the power law exists and a bunch of VCs and investors actually believe in it. So th- those types of outcomes are, are, are really hard, are, are really hard to achieve, but for the right business, raising venture capital makes sense, right? On a more tactical level, um, you know, people say, hey, at least 20% of your revenue should be coming from email, right? And that, yeah. that could be like an industry benchmark, but I could tell you for us, you know, we'll do high teens and maybe low 20s this year. We're not at 20% of email of revenue as uh, uh, driven by email. Um, and that's because if you know anything about our brand, just, it's just, it's, it's an acquisition based brand. It's not a retention brand. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you want to change it, yeah. you got to change the attributes. And that's something you guys are doing and have done and it's taken a while, but you're getting moving and grooving and adapted on the original birdie you're on birdie mm-hmm. plus got the subscription and so you're you're, you're changing the attributes to be able yeah. to oh you want a different kind of outcome so what do we have to change now to be able to get that later and so that's exactly right it's like i think some people know like oh clavio is a tool email is a tool i know how to use these tools everything's like like I have the hammers. When you have right. those hammers and only know how to use hammers, everything looks like a nail and you're just like smashing everything. Oh, they're doing an audit for a brand. Oh, you have to be at 20% or more or else you suck. Your business is going to die. And like, that's just, I think that's ridiculous because like, uh, it's not taking well, into account what there's like using the hammer for. Well, and, uh, and it kind of leads into the topic that we're going to talk about next week. Um, which is a lot of times the people who are pushing these narratives have an agenda. Suddenly, yeah. um, we have a buddy, Shane, who I talk this a lot about. It's like, you know, in the past year, since I was uh, 14, kind of new Facebook ads, there have been f- fucking hundreds of these CRO experts saying CRO is the next best, is, is the best thing since sliced bread, right? But why are they pushing that, that agenda? I mean, everyone has an agenda that they're pushing. Right. We have a fucking agenda. Okay. <laughs> Everyone has an agenda. Yeah. Um, so some people are less public and open about it um, than others. And like, and especially in our like corner on Twitter and like on the other, like next to it is this like money Twitter, how to make money online. And like this in the last couple of years, there's been like this huge, like cold email course. Like, yeah, you just like send out cold emails and it's like easy. Anyone can do it easy peasy. And like, this is how you get clients. And the whole thing is like, look, I got, I made all this money. I got clients, but they never, ever, 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 ever talk about how long they keep clients or how much impact they do for the clients. So you got these people with this cold email and then you got a much, I don't think it's easier or simpler. Maybe it's a lower learning curve, but you have email, you have the, all these email experts, like experts in air quotes pop up and start cold emailing everyone and try to think it's a numbers game. And then I charge this retainer and then I outsource the work and I keep going and I make a bunch of money, but I don't think that's sustainable when 
you're just using your hammer on everything you see and you only have this one like approach and you don't know how to adapt how to use a hammer or a different kind of tool for each different brand because every different brand has different attributes and different outcomes and goals so i i don't know if a lot of people even ask like are you gonna be holding on to this brand for the next five years are you trying to exit in the next two years like what's your situation like like what's the rest of the business they just like cool email number low i make the email number high and then they just like think they're the best because they like up the email number and they did they did this huge part in the business which like for a lot of people that's good that's part of it but if you're just shifting the attribution from facebook ads to email then you didn't you know you didn't really do your job so or like really help the business in that way so anyway and, yeah and it's a really hard thing to to think about as a founder right when you when you when you have something from the beginning it's really hard to say like hey this is gonna this is a billion dollar opportunity or this is a five million dollar opportunity or this is like a hundred million dollar opportunity or 50 million opportunity right so I think it's really just it's just super important to keep evaluating that as you progress the stages of your business and not just put it on the back burner. I think it's actually a really, really important thing to think about. Um, and we're going through that now. Yeah. It, it, it's making a big difference in how you and how you operate the day to day. That's all I got to say on that. Yeah. So we'll, we got some topics lined up for next time. Uh, we're going to be as candid as possible and share our thoughts and opinions and go after these ideas and discussions and topics. We're not going to go after individual people as best we can. So this is just episode one, just getting started. This is what me and Richie text about almost every day, the last two and a half years. And now we decided to yell into a microphone. So uh, you guys get to enjoy. Absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yep. This is absolutely incredible. Best podcast uh for the next couple of years well it might take a couple of years but we'll get there so thanks for <laughs> thanks for listening subscribe uh we'll be on all the platforms and we're also on youtube high key geek h-i-g-h-k-e-y-g-e-e-k so you can also watch the video version apple spotify anywhere you find your podcast we'll catch you next week